Welcome and happy Friday. It's January 20th, 2017, and this is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I'm here with Mark Elwood and Cynthia Drescher, both of whom are contributing editors for us. Cynthia is on the Skype, so if you notice any audio strangeness, that's probably why. I've also got Catherine LeGrave here. She's a senior digital editor for us. My name is Brad Rickman, and today we are going, first of all, happy inauguration day, everyone, if you're listening to us on Inauguration Day. And if you're not, you made it through. I will say it was interesting. I had an interesting experience yesterday when I was flying into New York. And it's something that I think is worth noting, and maybe we'll talk about in the future. There was an obstruction at LaGuardia when I was flying from Toronto. And word went round Pearson Airport slowly, and then the staff confirmed it, and then eventually the pilot on my plane confirmed it. And he said, President-elect Trump's plane was waiting to take off and they'd closed New York airspace. Mm. Now, of course, traditionally the president uses Air Force bases to commute between busy cities. But if, as he promises, he does make New York and DC his split base, it's going to make air travel between the two cities and around the two cities very hiccupy. And how long before somebody spins up a protest around that and makes it even worse? Worse. La- so I, you know, LaGuardia can get worse. Exactly. <laughs> just yes, when you thought it could. didn't think it could happen. Yeah. But, I, but I, think it's, I do think it's sort of something to put a pin on and think about when we think about Inauguration Day. We now have a president who's from New York, based in D.C. Those are the cities that are going to be in the crosshairs. Wherever you stand on politics, right. administratively, he's going to be in New York a lot more than we've been used to for the last eight years or under George Bush or under Bill Clinton. And if you are looking for the logistics of New York to get tougher, they're going to. Great. So on that happy note, we're going to talk about how you get out of New York and Mm -hmm. D.C. and anywhere else you wanted to uh, get out of. Our subject today is where to find the winter sun. It is obviously late January. The winter has set in and probably a little bit of the winter blues, although in New York anyway, it hasn't been as bad as it has been in some other parts of the country. But nonetheless, our thoughts turn to warmer climes. We want to know where we can get out of this and where we can get a little sunshine, a little vitamin D. And so, you know, I think we normally think of the Caribbean for this. That's a pretty easy thing. Not to short shrift it, because we can certainly talk about that. But I'm curious about any places that are on your radar that are kind of not the conventional places to think of. I was talking about this on a segment I did on Today recently on this very topic about affordable winter getaways. And I was surprised how great an option San Diego is at the moment. If you're nervous about Zika, obviously not in a Zika zone, it's America, very easy to get to, good transport links, but the weather is really balmy. You're not going to bake. You're going to get 60s, kind of hang out that way. But San Diego, I always think San Diego gets eclipsed by L.A. Mm. And if you love surfing... If you love tacos, I mean, the San Diego's sort of city, honorary city dish is the taco. Mm-hmm. San Diego's a great winter sun getaway, and there's lots of options. You can get luxury, you can go to Del Coronado, all of that. But there are also really small, funky hotels where you can kind of time warp a bit back to the 60s. Great. Yeah, I liked your note about San Diego that, sure, it's not the high season. You might have some rain, but that just makes everything greener. You can also see it's whale migration season. You can see that. And you can also, if you really want to, get up to L.A. on the Amtrak Surfliner. So that's a nice coastal trip. Talking that's about, not a new thing, right? Like that's been um, around? No, that came. We wrote a story on that in November. So it was a, an it was extension of. Yeah, yeah. It was mm-hmm. new back in November. Yep. I would also say, I think on the East Coast, we are, I think I can say this myself, that I think I am prone to think, oh, Winter Sun, Caribbean, Florida. But I, my friends in the Midwest often say, well, what about Arizona, which to me is, is always the Midwest's Florida. And those of us on the coast, I think, forget that Arizona, and I personally, allergic to greenery and the outdoors, as anyone who listens regularly will know. I love the desert and Cave Creek and around there, near the boulders, one of my favorite places to go in America. And again, dry It's the desert, but warm and very pleasant and not hard to get to. A little harder from the coasts, but if you're in the middle of the country, a great option. Yeah, and flights wouldn't be too expensive either. And we also talked about South Carolina, so not Charleston, which was our number one city in uh, Reader's Choice Awards for Best Small Cities in the U.S., but... Mark, we t- <laughs> we talked about Beaufort, Mister mm-hmm. so, Q, Mark. We t- yeah, sorry, <laughs> Beaufort, because I always say 
Beaufort. But that's not I, right. so t- I thought it was. Is it? It's uh, Beaufort, actually. It is Beaufort, go. South Beaufort. Carolina. What we love about Beaufort is it has an incredible old tabby building, tabby concrete, which is made out of shells. One of the oldest, this really historic inn, more than 200 years old. And it's got these huge thick walls and you're kind of stepping into the nicest part of sort of plantation era, the South. And I think the thing about coastal South Carolina, it, it does get overlooked by the big wigs of Charleston. And I, I think Beaufort is a beautiful, beautiful. Beaufort's north of Charleston, right? Mm-hmm. There used to be, when I was at Duke, there was a, the, a marine biology program that would take everybody down to Beaufort. And everybody wanted to get into that program because it was such a great place to hang out. I would also say the other one of the other places that I talked about was Tibby Island in, in mm-hmm. Georgia. Or Tybee Island. We had a big debate about this when I was doing the segment. Just uh, say Savannah's Beach. Well, ex- Savannah Beach is a Savannah way of getting Beach, around it. Right. <laughs> um, and you can please, anyone listening, please correct us because we did have a big debate. But um, Savannah Beach, and it did rename itself Savannah Beach in the 60s. It did go back to its original name after they realized that was perhaps a little excessively marketing driven. What I love about what I, I love about Savannah Beach, not just Savannah, where I'm going in a couple of weeks, one of my real kind of favorite places in America, but you've got the beaches there and historic, like the Island Lighthouse there has an incredible eight, multiple acre historic park restored that way. You can get really affordable places to stay on the beach. I think of it as a forgotten corner of those kind of low country parts. Because when we think of low country, there's a certain picture, there's the gullah, there's all of that. And this is, you're like, oh yeah, this is part of the low country as well. Really accessible, 20 miles east of Savannah. And excellent shrimp. I was gonna say, how's the food? The food, well, I mean, you're still getting, you're obviously getting, it's a small enough destination where there really aren't chain hotels. There There are some chain restaurants, but not a huge number. You're going to have the fishermen coming in and selling their catch to the local restaurants. That, I think, is the best thing about it, you know. When you go down there, and the same thing is true with parts of Florida, if you're on the coast, if you can find a way to get that fresh seafood, you know, that is something that's very difficult to find at this time of year. What about off the North American sort of piece, like Central America, South America? Where are you guys excited about or where would you tell people to go? Cynthia, you got anything in mind? Yeah, I would say right now, I would go all the way down to Chilean Patagonia, Argentine Patagonia. Even further, you can go to Antarctica. (laughs) It's bright sunlight 24-7 there right now. So if you're just looking for the vitamin C, do you get a a sunburn? Do you get a sunburn from that much snow? It's sort of like it's like a sunbed from snow. (laughs) And how would you get down there? Would would you be doing a cruise? Would you how what would what would your plan be if you were going to head down there? Well, obviously, the most popular is to take the cruise from Ushuaia. You can also fly in because people don't like to do the Drake Passage twice if they can help it. You know, the famously tumultuous seas between the tip of Chile and the start of the Antarctic Peninsula. So that's about one to two days transit on a boat. But if you can fly over it one way and the boat's waiting for you in Antarctica and the conditions are right for the plane to land, then you can just do it in about five to seven days, and you only have to deal with the Drake Passage on the way back. And it will be endlessly sunny. I mean, joking aside, it will be endlessly sunny, won't it? I mean, it'll be cold, but the weather will be glorious in one way. And I think people are also, I mean, Chile does not have Zika, which is a selling point for a lot of people these days, right? We had a a gallery on our site, nine, I think nine places um, where you can go right now that are Zika-free. Nine Zika-free places. Yeah, yeah. nine Zika-free destinations, right? So Chile was on there. um, Uruguay was on there. We're talking about locations like that you know you're not just thinking of islands anymore well, you're thinking not equatorial and yeah. essentially mm-hmm. if you're worried about zika start at the equator and go out and you eventually pass out of zika's sustainable area one of the things i was wondering about the antarctic trip right now is is this a place that people should be thinking about you know we've done a number of pieces about places you should go before climate change has a massive impact is antarctica another one of those Oh, 100%. Because there's always the controversy, should there be tourists in the Antarctic? You know, what are we doing down there leaving our footprints around the penguins? But the idea is, if you go and you can see it, then you start to have a personal connection with the destination. And following your trip, you're more likely to donate to um, wildlife preservation. You're an advocate for 
conservation of these regions. You know, you understand it much better from having a personal a week on the continent, if you want to put it that way. You've had a week on the continent. But I went to the North Pole in July, and it's the same case up there. Obviously, there's so many fewer tourists going up to the North Pole since it's a two-week journey. Yeah, break that down a little. Break that down for us just a little bit. How does one visit the North Pole? Well, there is one ship that can do regularly scheduled voyages, only one. Um, and it is a Russian nuclear icebreaker that leaves out of Murmansk, <laughs> Russia. Yeah. <laughs> this is insane. You rode on a yeah, Russian so, nuclear icebreaker? Yeah. So you have to get a, a special visa to enter Russia, of course. All visitors to Russia have to have the tourist visa. So once That's going to change. That, Trump's going to fix that. No more, no more visa required for Americans. Well, the really funny thing about my Russian visa and my passport is also last year I went to Cuba right after that. And I've just I'm in Vietnam right now. And they're all of those stamps are all crowded on the same like three pages. They're all next to each other. So how long does it take you to get back through customs when you come in? <laughs> but Cynthia, Cuba stamp writer. Yeah. how was the how was the how was the buffet on the on the Russian cruise ship? <laughs> Uh, well, the hotel staff on board, so the chefs, the waiters, they were from Eastern Europe. So it was actually more like having dinner in Slovenia, Slovakia constantly. <laughs> and did you learn much Russian? That must be amazing because you, I presume English was not the lingua franca on board, or was it? Yeah, it absolutely was, actually, because mm. you have – there are some small tour groups that book groups of these cabins. You have – groups of Germans, groups of Russians, there was a British group, but the common language amongst all of us is English. And there's only 126 passengers on the ship. That's as big as it gets. And And then you have, of course, the Russian crew. And did you get sunburn? Was it so sunny that you had to wear, you had to wear lots of sunscreen? Constantly, constantly. And of course, you want to spend all your time out on deck because there's walrus popping up. There's polar bears every time we pass big flows. The only time you're inside is to drink vodka and have dinner. <laughs> so you have to come with a huge bottle of like SPF 80 and then constantly wear your hat so that your ear tips don't burn. This is like an alternative warm weather destination. I was going to say, but, but, like yeah, but I, I, be honest, be honest with me here. Come... When you said you were out on the deck, if we had to put on a continuum between gulag and the Four Seasons, where would the room sit? The room you were sleeping in that you were so uh, not, ke- you know, so keen on the deck. How much of it was that being in the room wasn't very fun? Yeah, the ship's name is 50 Years of Victory. Of course, I can't pronounce the <laughs> Russian name, but it's a research vessel and a guide vessel for ships it- going through the Northwest Passage. So when guests are on board for these North Pole voyages, they're staying in the rooms that staff would usually be in. Mm. Um, so there's a large desk. <laughs> there's a lot of cupboard storage. Everyone has a window. Um, Was this yeah, a working it's, trip it's, for you? Were you working? Yes. Listeners should know Cynthia is among our more well-traveled correspondents. She is constantly on the road. She's been everywhere on Earth I don't think I'm overstating the case when I say you have seen everything and done damn near everything. Yeah, Cynthia, I saw your... How many miles did you fly last year? Something crazy. 230,000. <laughs> yeah. So that just puts it in perspective. Yeah. And, and how many of those were when you had to take a plane home from the Arctic because the, the <laughs> boat broke down? <laughs> yeah, see, the North Pole trip is so rare. There's only mm, four or five offered every summer. So... There's a charter flight that's also arranged. So, I, I mean, I flew about 24 different airlines last year, plus this Severstal, which is a charter airline up for oil workers <laughs> in Russia. That must have yeah, been amazing. So back to, yeah, back to the cabins. They're great, but there's also an indoor swimming pool. Wow. Mm. On the that boat? That feels like a gulag. Yeah, that feels more like a gulag. Like, I'm in a gymnasium in late 1960s soviet russia and russian people are shouting at you to go faster <laughs> oh no they're all they're all in the saunas oh did On you board. try that how were the saunas yeah. were, were they good oh yeah they're fabulous the thing is the pool kind of smells faintly of fish because it's salt water that's taken in yeah <laughs> wait a minute that's not necessarily a thing that always happens just because you have salt water it smells like fish yeah. <laughs> 
I feel like they so keep the fish like in there like when you're not in there. <laughs> I think there's there just like a, a grate that prevents the fish from an coming. economy of storage yeah. happening there that probably wasn't in a on breakfast. The menu. You're like, this looks familiar. <laughs> I had this. It's just I about swam, cold enough. <laughs> I swam next to this kipper yesterday. <laughs> I mean, we're we're supposed to be talking about all this warm weather stuff, but I have to say, on that trip, they do offer the polar plunge. So what they do is the ice that's been broken up behind the ship, when we're at the North Pole, they just stop the ship in an area where the ice is fast enough, and they just put a staircase down into the water right behind the ship, and they tie a rope to you. They have one of the Russian sailors come down in his outfit. into a block of <laughs> and he ice. Ties a rope. <laughs> Fish you back yeah. up. He, he ties a rope around your waist and you can jump in. Did but, you do it? Oh, absolutely. I was the second one in. I that Good is view. that is the right and answer. I was going to say as facetious as we're being, you know, we're obviously being facetious and we're playing off every cliche. This is an incredible experience. I mean, I'm super jealous. I mean, I, yeah, I'm I'd super jealous. Yeah. What an incredible thing to have done. And I think and as you point out, we're talking about winter sun in this podcast. We're not talking necessarily about baking on the beach. And I love the idea of going somewhere that has incredible weather, but maybe not in the way you might assume. I love that that sense of going to the poles because, again, as someone who's allergic to the outdoors, even I am salivating at what an amazing thing that would is. Would you go in the water? Oh, I'd dive. Of course. Why wouldn't you, if you're given... You know, we that truism is very you know other than sort of hard drugs. You know, in life, you regret <laughs> and even more, then <laughs> you regret more what you you regret more what you haven't done than what you have done. And what an incredible story to tell! Totally. Did you see evidence, or did they point out evidence? Was it part of the conversation to talk about the ways in which? the landscape there is changing as a result. Because we, we read about this every day. It's something that we report on, but it's also something that's just in the news. And I'm wondering if there was evidence in your experience and if that was part of the dialogue that you were engaged in with the staff and with the other travelers there. Uh, constantly. It was actually a reason for many of the passengers who chose to go on the journey. It's a $25,000 per person trip. So they don't make the decision lightly to, you know, make this their trip for the year. And you have people on board who are wondering if it's going to look the same, you know, if they chose to go five years from now versus now. And you have the um, the lectures on board, one of which is a polar historian, and he's the son-in-law of the first British explorer to cross the Arctic on foot. <laughs> and hmm. he, yeah, Mark's he's reaching back for the for name. Going, just, he more, knows the name. All British people aren't related. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there are 60 million of they us. They weren't at the meeting. No, exactly. <laughs> the one concern I would have about a trip like this is, deep down, if we look at what happened with Fathom, Carnival's do-gooding cruise line, which imploded recently, which proved that we essentially kind of want to feel like we're doing good, but deep down we don't, we, it, we don't want to eat vacation kale at every meal. Does that does that Arctic trip feel fun as well as educational? Do you know what I mean? Like, is it, or do you just feel a little bit like you're hearing about global warming at every meal? Well, I mean, you do cry an awful lot, but it's mostly out of the joy of being in this one spot to witness certain events. Like, you'll be the only one on deck, and there will be this fantastic sun dog, or a fog bow appears behind What's the a ship. Dog? Or you, sorry, I got a sun dog. Yeah, what's the yeah, sun Yeah, it's like a halo. Uh, it's kind of like when the weather and the sun work together to create this halo in the sky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. So, and you... you get these fog bows. And so you, you'll be up on deck and you realize that you're the only person in the world looking at this right now because maybe everybody else is inside having vodka. And you just, <laughs> the tears start coming. And then you realize that if we have, you know, global warming, uh, the weather is going to change. You're going to have fewer polar bears allowed to walk out as far as, you know, ca- capable of walking out as far as they do down near to the mainland and around Franz Josef Land. And you're going to have to, um, I mean, right now we only have this one ship. It's getting old. There's a replacement in the works. But at this point, um, you just, I mean, the idea is you have to go right now. You have to go as soon as possible and if you Cynthia, want to see it. It it makes me discovered think with that. The brief Kevin Brockmeyer's book, The Brief History of the Dead, which is one of my favorite novels about the idea that there is an afterlife, which is not religious, but there's an afterlife that we only live in the afterlife as long as someone who remembers us is alive. Mm. And a virus hits the world and wipes out 
everyone except this one woman who is working in the polar ice caps on some research facility. I feel like I read this book. So everyone in the in the afterlife is used to it expanding and it's contracting. And she is, it reminds, it's this wonderful lyrical sense that when you're in those ice caps, you really are the only person there. And she survives the virus because she is so isolated from any other human contact. Wow. We came back to a zombie that, apocalypse. Yeah, that's a segue, right? Yeah. Where can you go to be isolated during the winter? I was going to ask about Uruguay because, like, we went all the way up. Oh, and yeah. then that's true. Uruguay was on our our list of places for people to go, and I guess maybe Uruguay stands in for South America, kind of generally, not necessarily coastal. Although I think Cynthia covered that pretty well, but because I'm a, I'm a big advocate of Lima and Peru generally, but Uruguay right now seems to be a place that you're not on the coast, you're getting the gaucho experience, but it's another one where the weather's good right now. And But in the winter, I mean, that's the maximum winter goes south. I mean, mm-hmm. in that simple way, if you're looking for winter sun, wherever you are in the U.S., go south. Yeah. Because you're essentially looking for the other hemisphere. Sure, sure. So it's a very good, if in doubt, just you know, block out the northern half of the world and think where and where mm-hmm. there do I want to go? What about going east? East and south, you mean? So to Hawaii or to... Well, no, no, east, well, east from New York? East, but outside the United States. <laughs> okay. Because we already... We Bermuda. Already, yeah. Mark, didn't you write about... I Bermuda? did. I went to Bermuda. and I've, British I've talked Virgin about, Islands, I've talked about I've talked about how much I, I love being in Bermuda, partly because it sort of refreshes my Britishness, which I always worry sort of ebbs away, sort of leaks out, like it needs refreshing. But I do... What I would say, it's interesting when you talk about island routes like the BVI's. The mm-hmm. BVI's has a lot of new airlift this winter. The BVI Airways should finally launch its direct route from Miami, which has right. been very delayed, but it should launch... This month, we're hoping, to Tortola. And then Inter-Caribbean has boosted its shuttle service from San Juan to as many as 18 flights a week. It's one of the really good maxims. If you're looking for winter sun, or you're looking for a bargain at winter sun, think, look for new airlines, new routes, mm. places that are trying to get traction. Because a bit like all of those HelloFresh and Blue Apron have four free meals to try our service. Right. Sure. Yeah. They're doing the same thing. So it, it's a loss leader. So if in doubt, look for new airlines, new routes. Just we've got plenty of stories on the site, but you can, you know, you can just Google new routes in the Caribbean. We cover so many of those. And that's a great way of saying, okay, where am I gonna go? Let me check that. And I also love Skyscanner is a fantastic yeah, is a fantastic a, search yeah. mechanism. But what Skyscanner offers, if you are thinking I just want to get away. I don't know where to go. You've listened to the podcast and you're like, eh, those guys gave us some ideas, but like, whatever, let me let me see. Skyscanner allows you to type in your outbound airport and then in the destination part, you can put everywhere. Mm-hmm. So what it essentially does is show you the flight prices from your given airport on a certain date and you can think, okay, I want to go away that weekend. I want some winter sun. I'm in Cincinnati. What is the best value I can get? Use Skyscanner and it will give you the options. And you might find that if you're hitting a new airline or you're hitting an underserved route, you can snag an unexpected batch of winter sun for a much more affordable price. Yeah, free product idea to Skyscanner. Let people, you know, kind of like Hipmunk has the misery index that you can use. Skyscanner or, or somebody needs to develop a, like, find me someplace warm. And it serves you up the places that are warm or find me a place with a beach or whatever. I was going to ask you, Mark, and I haven't had a chance to talk with you about this because one of the places that we recommended people go in 2017 is Cuba, but get outside of Havana. And I'm actually going uh, next month. I'm going to Cuba. I'm going to Havana. And I'm, I'm going to go outside the city a little bit. So I'm wondering what people, if we have any specific recommendations for people Outside of Havana and Cuba. Well, I would say things. You know, there are new flights to Santa Clara, right? There are. There, the, the flight. The flight options to Cuba are proliferating, and I would encourage everyone who's curious about Cuba for many reasons to go very soon. We've talked about this a lot. Laura, our colleague, is a big Cuba aficionado. She went. Lalit, another colleague of ours, took a, a yeah. cruise there. Yeah. 
remember, when new routes open up, as we just talked about, they don't always stick around. They're cheap at the beginning, and if they don't work, and that cheapness doesn't fill the planes, the airlines cut them. And at the moment, Cuba is a big experiment. Also, with the change in the administration, who knows what will happen? Yeah, totally. So if you're thinking about Cuba, do Cuba now. I would always say things like, you know, the Ballet Revolution, those kind of things. The cultural part of Cuba has been very foregrounded. And if you're looking to, like, if you go to Teatro Marti in Santiago de Cuba, you want to basically, even if you don't speak Spanish, Cuba has retained a quite a highbrow culture. And I think you'll really, that's a way to get under the skin of it rather than just thinking cute old cars that they repair using improvised materials and, wow, this is what rice and beans is really supposed to taste like. Right. First of all, I think it's important to say to listeners, if you're having trouble figuring out how to navigate Cuba, you're not alone. And we're part of what we're doing here is we're trying to be helpful with that. So in the coming months, we are trying to pull together some of our own experiences and reporting and things like that. And that's part of the reason why I'm going as well. But I would also say, you know, things like Airbnb are actually great there, particularly in Havana, of course, but you can find them throughout the country. And I think if you're if you're thinking of going now, and, and I would recommend that you do think of going now because of all the reasons Mark just said, you know, definitely look at Airbnb, definitely look at some of these direct flights. There are quite a few of them. They actually are not as empty as we've been sort of hearing that they are, having gone through the booking process. So don't be overly lax with yourself. But again, it's a place where right now it's a great time to go. I think there's been an, an additional loop that may get retracted in terms of the criteria for getting there. And of course, it's a place where the sun is going to be good, the weather's going to be good this time of year as well. And I think another, what you and Mark both said was that kind of like the Blue Apron thing, they're sort of testing out these flights, seeing if they're successful. JetBlue just announced that you could get three times the true blue points. So if I fly to these locations in Cuba, I'm going to get like a three hundred fare, three hundred dollar fare, excuse me, from Miami to Havana will get me nine hundred points instead of three hundred. So you know, if you're a JetBlue member, it's that's a reason a good to be a pioneer. Exactly, exactly. right? Yeah, and, and that's so- important too. Is if you're looking for direct flights from whatever your city is, whether it's New York, Boston, or any other part of the country, those are tough to come by right now. But you can get a lot that go through Miami. So if you're able to find a nice cheap flight to Miami, mm-hmm. definitely look at the flights from Miami to Cuba because you may be able to put together an itinerary that's more cost effective that way. Yeah. Cynthia, what was your what was your Cuba itinerary? Did you go crazy exploring or were you jetting in and jetting out? Well, you were on the first JetBlue uh, flight, right? Yeah, I was on the first. I was on the first one from Fort Lauderdale to Santa Clara. So I have not been to Havana. I have only been to, you know, a town in the middle of the country. And I did an Airbnb and it was fantastic. It was this little guest house, but run by an LGBT friendly owner who's pretty out. <laughs> and <laughs> they um, all come with staff. This is the amazing thing that we've yeah. encountered without even looking for it. Like it just seems to be a thing. And the really great thing about our Airbnb, and I don't want to give you the name of this just in case the Cuban government's listening, but he had a <laughs> Wi Fi repeater on the roof. So we didn't, you'll find out from being in Cuba that you have to go to the squares or to one of the state owned hotels and purchase a card that usually has 60 minutes of access time on it. But at the Airbnb that I stayed at in Santa Clara, he had a Wi-Fi repeater on the roof and the building was high enough that he could catch the signal from the main square. So we could sit up in our little private bar al fresco on top and just be online i mean i was actually i guessed it on a different podcast from the top there you did <laughs> I that's was amazing that's, so that's a good that. signal that's good signal <laughs> no but, but cynthia i think you're raising a really interesting point and it's one of I, I don't know what your policy is on this but whenever i go on assignment to a place that is not in europe japan even well even australia and, and north america my email bounce back is always, please bear with me as I don't know how reachable I'll be. I know I'll try. And I think whenever we take vacations, places like Cuba, one of the ways to stop yourself having stress on a trip that's supposed to be relaxing is to essentially tell everyone, I will be unreachable unless you hear otherwise. Because I think it's very important if you're trying to, it, not as a digital detox, but it can be very stressful if you think, oh, I didn't mention to everyone, I'm, I'm, not, oh, I'm, not, I'm not reachable in the email, I have to run into the square. Plan ahead and say, you know what, this is one of those times when I'm not super reachable, um, bear with me. 
Well, there's also the cool factor of being able to say that. Say, hey, uh, yeah, you don't don't call me next week. I'm going to Cuba. Yeah, and totally. not uh, the North Pole trip is two weeks of offline, and not everyone can do that. So three days in Cuba is a very is easy digital detox to use that phrase, but without having to be completely offline, where you can go hang out with the locals in the park and sit on a park bench and just casually go through your email, and you're watching like parents they they rent these little push cars in the parks and take their kids around and it's a really easy way to experience a bit of the local flavor while still um keeping in touch with home i mean i'm I'm glad to hear you saying this because i'm completely freaking out about the being offline because i literally there's not anything that i do that's not online in some way so i like reading books i magazines whatever it's all digital so it's reassuring that to know that at some I, I may have to spend a lot of time in the park i'll look like a drug addict but Nonetheless, yeah. or he wants the name of your. I look Airbnb. like I'm trying to score everywhere. Yeah. Oh, although I would be, I'd be <laughs> very, I'd be very curious about. We we talked about Cuba a few times on on this podcast, at least some of the episodes that I've been on. And I'm curious about any of the listeners. If any of you have been since things loosened up, do you have tips for Brad, or what was your experience of? Wi-Fi connectivity, airline connections. Was your flight busy? Please tell us because we'd love to know firsthand. We can rely on you for your kind of eyewitness reports. And getting yes. out of Havana. Right? No, in particular, yeah. I'm going to Havana and I'm going to Vinales. So if you have suggestions on Vinales, Havana, I feel like I've got a lot. I'm armed, but I'm always happy to hear particularly places to eat. Um, which are not easy to intel about that is not easy to come by stateside and uh, and also places to hang out. I've got a we're gonna have our eight year old this time and so he's coming along and so you know stuff to do with him. But if you got tips in Vinales, hikes we could do, things we could explore, um, loved would love to uh, examine that. And I'm curious, Cynthia, you went to Santa Clara. Where can you get to from Santa Clara because that's kind of in the middle of the country, right? Yeah, Santa Clara is actually the railway hub for the country. So since it's right in the middle, you have the rail routes that radiate out, or you can just get a private car for, you know, it's a three hour drive to Havana. You can go up up north to the beaches, you can go down, well, you can go north or south to the beaches, really, you're in the middle of a country. And let's see, Trinidad is only an hour's drive away. But I didn't, I mean, I just stayed in Santa Clara and kind of just started walking around and around a corner I saw an airplane in the middle of the street all right so I mean <laughs> so you can kind of go anywhere just sitting there yeah, or like taking well, off well get off Google Maps is what I'm saying and just start walking around and you'll find these things because this was not on a map and it was an old uh, Soviet Ilyushin plane that they had turned into a beer bar so oh my, my friend God. and I went in and we tried to order beer, but it only came in like those giant funnels that you see in German. <laughs> you say that like it's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, we accident. We only wanted one liter, which was the minimum, but we ended up ordering three liters, and it was just myself and my friend. So we quickly made friends with all the other people in this I'm old not plane. Surprised. Yes. Yeah. Beer bar. <laughs> there are two girls buying beer for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm gonna like and Cuba. Course, it's gonna be great. Yeah. Not gonna miss. Of course, the next door internet. was uh, a helicopter that was an ice cream shop. So, wow. I'm gonna, so now I have to go to Santa Clara. Okay, reasons to go yeah. back. Mark, you have recommended that you know getting taking it again outside the Caribbean to other parts of the world. Israel is a place you should, people should be heading. This right is so. Now. It's one of my favorite Britishisms, which I don't think has has sort of migrated across the Atlantic yet. There's this, you know, there's hugo, which is the Danish sense of. Coziness. My favorite thing. Yeah, <laughs> where you stay home and just feel kind of cozy and snuggly. But there's also the mammal. And the mammal is a phenomenon you might spot in Britain. In a, a local park, about 6 a.m., it is often solitary. Uh, it's often very focused. It will be hard to spot because it will be blending in with its landscape because it is a middle-aged man in lycra. Hmm. running around the park in training for his midlife crisis Ironman triathlon. Gordon Ramsay, of course, is the ultimate example of a mammal who went from being kind of a chubby chef to a sort of buff everyman who's, who just loves exercise at, I think, mid-40s, mid 45, knocking 50. So this idea of the mammal... The what does it stand for? Middle middle-aged aged man in lycra. The uh. mammal... 
And that animal you will see all across Europe and also in Israel uh, on the Mediterranean basin because Israel this month has several outdoors events which are aimed at the athletic. Ironmans, triathlons. And I think that's another thing. It's often easy to forget that places on the Mediterranean Basin, especially south and east of the Mediterranean Basin, those are winter sun getaways. At the moment, the British press is very full of a huge number of holidaymakers who are being repatriated from the Gambia because of the political turmoil there. Now, the Gambia, of course, is in West Africa. Mm. But in Britain, you would go for winter sun because there are some fantastic resorts there. All of those unexpected places where you think, oh, essentially rimming the south and east of the Mediterranean and the east of the Atlantic, you're going to get an incredible bout of winter sun. And remember, most of the US flights that go to South Africa will stop in Dakar in Senegal, very near the Gambia. It looks like the Gambia is going to calm down. It's it's more to do with a sort of political transition. But that West African part, all of that, like Israel, they're great winter sun destinations. And you do, as Cynthia said, you also get the show off value of saying, you know, just kind of Senegal, just kind of sit on the beach in Senegal. <laughs> well, well I, or Dakar. I mean, this is another Senegal right now. I, uh, we'll see. But uh, but Dakar is another place where we've been sort of saying do the stopover, right? Because you can get two trips out of one, or or you know, a trip and a half out of mm-hmm. one. Where in the Pacific would we be telling people to go this time of year? Well, I have to say, Cynthia, I'm sure. Have you been to? Have you been to Tahiti? When I say Cynthia, have you been to? I feel like I should essentially say Mars, <laughs> and otherwise you'll just no, say just yes. say Cynthia when you went, went to. to. <laughs> Thank you, Cynthia. When you went to Tahiti, I was fascinated to learn the Tahiti tourism people have done a brilliant job of telling us all something which I found quite charming, which is that. 2017 is the 50th anniversary of the overwater bungalow being invented in Tahiti. Really? Because it wasn't some folklore tradition of living over the water and fishing from your house. It was a vacation-driven, idyllic, honeymoon factory kind of fun thing that some American guys invented in Tahiti. So I would... It's an American invention. Where did you go into it? Where would you recommend in French Polynesian, Cynthia? (laughs) Okay, well, actually, I have not been to Tahiti, (gasps) so you have me there. We've discovered it on the podcast. This is a reason. (laughs) That's the reason alone to listen. Sorry. I didn't mean to. No, that was my fault. Sorry. Sorry, Cynthia. Um, No, I I have been through the South Pacific, but I haven't yet been to Tahiti. And I've been to Easter Island, although no overwater bungalows there. But you just wrote a great great piece for us about Caribbean. Well, going back to the Caribbean, um, the the first overwater bungalows there were 50 years in the making. Yeah, exactly. So, of course, it was an American invention, as Mark just said. And that was morea and tahiti and bora bora they there were four resorts that started it and then it went to the hotel bora bora as the first luxury resort and that was 1970 but the jamaica ones that just opened in december there's only five of them and they're about to add 12 smaller ones in the shape of a heart of course because it'll look better from a drone But yeah, I haven't been to Tahiti. Um, but Bora Bora, Bora, there's a new, there's a new, but in Bora Bora, there's a new Four Seasons there, right? That just opened. Is that not right? And and also a new Conrad coming. We've got a Conrad coming in Bora Bora. What I would encourage people to remember about Tahiti, and this is my own personal. Again, I'm the urban one among us. I find all the Tahitian islands absolutely beautiful. They're lovely. They're wonderful. They're exactly what they do on the tin. You know, you 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 get to a Tahitian island, Bora Bora. You know, you are in textbook cliche movie paradise it looks like that which is pretty awesome which is amazing but what i would encourage people not to do it's a bit like it's a bit like the seventh brady sibling if there were seven brady siblings and in the pilot they cut another sister you know like that jan and marsha and there was another sister who everyone was even nancy even nancy brady the nancy brady of tahiti is Papete, the the main island itself, (laughs) that people essentially arrive in and do everything possible to avoid experiencing because they've been told, oh, don't go to Papete. And I found Papete by far the most interesting and fun place because 
it is trafficy and urban and the infrastructure is terrible and this you know it just it really is struggling to work out what it does but it's also this wonderful collision of french culture the european culture which you know tahiti is part of and polynesian culture so unlike the islands which feel much more undiluted polynesian whether authentically or otherwise Papete has that wonderful collision of cultures that Macau has or other places that have colonial heritage that they they've put in a in a Vitamix and hit the button and said blend and Papete is if you are considering Tahiti I would encourage you to at least spend a couple of nights in Papete it won't be the overwater bungalow moment but it will be incredibly memorable I, I mean that sounds Brilliant, actually, um, and very smart as a way of using that to get more than one kind of thing. Not surprising from you, Mark. Thank you. Um, but, <laughs> Cynthia, you, I'm curious. That's the reason I like you. I'm curious because uh, while we're in the Pacific and headed that direction, you know, you're in Vietnam right now. That's where you're calling us from. Yeah. It's like 6 in the morning or some ridiculous hour. What is that like this time of year? And is that a place that uh, that might be on people's list to go to get away from winter weather in the United States? Well, so the problem with Vietnam is that it's always a one-stop trip from the U.S., so you really have to commit to coming all this way for, you know, at least a week to make it worth it. But what that means is you can do a stopover on the way or on the way back. So I did a stopover on the way in Hong Kong, and I'll be going back via Bangkok. But January and February in Hong Kong, Vietnam, anywhere kind of in Southeast Asia, or if you just want to go to China, although that's not warm, there's this incredible electricity as the countries prepare for Chinese New Year. So it's different Great in point. that it's, yeah, so you don't have, I mean, it's just as crazy right before Christmas, but that's more of like a uh, you know, like retail focus, but here you've got, there, there's more of a family focus and you have the traditions that start to come into play, like the idea of having to clean everything and have new clothes for the new year and um, new decorations in the house. So like when I'm walking down the street here in Hoi An, there's the usual moped crazy traffic, but I see tons of mopeds with all these um, red lanterns and the Chinese New Year decorations, they're hauling them home to start decorating their houses. And the businesses are putting up the decorations on their windows and they're starting to roll out the specialty menus. And the and bakeries are putting about a week away? Out, you're about a, 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 roughly a week uh, away? January 28th yeah, is the year of the rooster. Yeah. I, I always forget how, although New Year starts one day, the, the year of whatever animal it is, there is is a couple of days later or something, but it's January 28th this year, which is on the early side. Mm. But Cynthia, I don't know what you would say, but whenever I've been in Asia in January or February, I would always want to avoid being there for New Year in the sense that it's very expensive to be there for New Year because it's truly like right. Christmas and Thanksgiving combined. But the run-up or the aftermath are amazing. Is that what, what would you think? I mean, you're, you're there. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm here I every January. I come to Southeast Asia for this. And I, I don't I have been around for the aftermath. But I was in Hong Kong for Chinese New Year a couple years ago. And you're right. It's extremely expensive. Everywhere is crowded. I mean, you have to wait several trains just to get on the metro. But they close Nathan Road, which is the thoroughfare in Kowloon. And you can just walk on the street. So you have like eight lanes through the center of Chimsa Choi, and it's just everybody's out having a great time at night. The fireworks are over the harbor in front of you. So if you can afford to come to one of these places that are really the center for celebrating Chinese New Year, absolutely do it. But if you don't want to spend, you know, $700 a night in Hong Kong for Chinese New Year, then you come the week or two before and you get all of that fun, of course, without the fireworks, but you do get the specialty menus, you do get the warm weather, but you don't have to um, be shoved into a metro train. So we do sky, essentially, we, to combine all of our points, you go to, we do Skyscanner from your origin <laughs> point, look for everywhere and then find somewhere in Asia that's affordable in the next week and just jump on a plane. You probably right, could exactly. do that. I mean, yeah. that's actually not a bad game plan. And I think it's also, I think the other thing that it's easy to forget that January and February are seen as, they are peak season for Miami and the Caribbean or for South Florida and the Caribbean, even Orlando. But for a lot of other places, they really are the depths of cheapness. Mm. When I fly back to London for my birthday 
every February and brave the snowstorms that close the airports, <laughs> I never pay less for my flight than that moment. So actually, if you're being creative and hopefully what we've talked about has kind of inspired you to think that way, you can get very affordable winter getaways in January and February. And if you're looking for sun, yes, you might have to take a bit more time off work, but boy, it's going to be affordable. And imagine going to Vietnam at the drop of a hat to experience pre-Chinese New Year and kind of have your rickshaw driver give you a Chinese lantern as a thank you for, you know, tipping him extra. That's an amazing moment. And I also think you make a good point about the vacation, right? Because most people in the holidays, they're going to take vacation around Christmas because that's natural. But everybody else is doing that. So why not say, hey, I'll work then. I mean, I'll, I'll see my family or whatever. But then I'll go somewhere that's super cheap in January, if February you, and be, you know, if you the were the person, person off. That's what, thank you, Catherine. If <laughs> you were the person who basically said, I'll take one for the team. Yeah. I'll work the bad hours. Whether you're working in a, in a mall or you're working in an office, I'll work the bad hours that no one else wants to work between Christmas and New Year. You are now in pole position to find an amazing, much more affordable, like, braggedly destination yeah. of amazing winter sun at a much better price. So I... We're not a fair sample set of this, but Catherine, are you going anywhere in the next month or two? Uh, taking a winter? Are you taking a winter trip? No, I'll go somewhere for my honeymoon, but that is <gasps> which we'll come. We'll do another podcast yeah, we'll, on. We'll uh, help Catherine's her. honeymoon. Catherine's We're gonna have to honeymoon. do a honeymoon podcast now. <laughs> That's right, but no, uh, I am not because I was the person who traveled in December you around traveled, Christmas. Yeah. Everybody did. Yeah, yeah. Mark. Not fair. We're all we all work, but again, where you well, no, I obviously I work with you guys, but I don't work in the office like Cynthia. So we we get to sound much more glamorous than we are, right? Exactly, Cynthia. Do you, you know, like I, I know this is that terrible sort of like play me on your tiny violin, um, <laughs> as you sit in your hotel room at breakfast. But I empathise. I'm going to Milan, Copenhagen, Savannah, London. Bogota. Oh, God, stop. Can I go with you, Mark? Yeah. Again, Catherine, anytime. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Shall and we ask Cynthia where she's going? Okay. Cynthia, now where are you going after Vietnam? You know, pale in comparison, Cynthia, blow me out of the water. Go <laughs> yeah, on. where are you going after Vietnam? Uh, well, actually, I'm the perfect example of someone who waits until this time of the year and jumps on all those airfare deals. So I have two awesome deals booked for February that were extraordinarily cheap, like maybe historically cheap. Nice. And one is I'm flying down to Cancun, but then I'm renting a car and I'm going to Isla Holbosch, which is kind of the alternative to Isla Mujeres off Cancun. Mm. And during its high season is July when the whale sharks are in. But during January, February, you can have it for, I mean, like, I mean, places on the beach, like $10 a night, you know? Wow. <laughs> so wow. That's fantastic. Um, Actually, I think I'm paying like $35 a night. But That's a good warm, anyway, warm and, escape. Yeah. And at the end of February, I'm going to the big island of Hawaii, flying nonstop from Phoenix to Kona. And there's a whole bunch of routes that, are, that have become much more affordable since Virgin America started flying to Hawaii. I mean, not the big island. But Hawaiian Airlines is starting a new flight from between Kauai and I think it's Kona. It's either Kauai and Hila or Kauai and Kona, but between Kauai and the Big Island so that you don't need to change in Honolulu all the time. You don't need to fly through H&L and pay the premium prices just to go to these outer islands anymore. I feel like Hawaii is one of these places we always overlook. It's think, right there on the doorstep. But I would just... argue, I think we're very guilty of that. And, and, and again, I'm sure our listeners will the listeners who are not on the East Coast will be sort of shaking their fists. Yeah, they'll fix us. Whatever. But I think <laughs> as East Coasters, we forget, because Hawaii is so far from it us, is. it's a long way from any of the continental United States, but it is particularly a long way for us. We could get to almost Hong Kong via right. Europe somehow, you know, something... And I think we're very guilty of maybe overlooking it yeah. as this incredible destination, which, especially for the West Coast, is a cultural difference. While you don't have a visa, you don't have to worry about some of the logistics, but it's not, you can go for a long weekend without really worrying about jet lag. Totally. But you have, I think you have Maui for places to travel in January, right, Mark? We've talked about, yes, we have talked about uh, Maui as a, as a great place to go in January. I would always encourage, I think something about, what I would always encourage people about Hawaii is, and I don't, Cynthia, if you, what you would say, but I find that often 
getting Hawaii more than anywhere, getting out of the wonderful but overly convenient urban centers where everything is just configured to be a great vacation and trying to dig a bit deeper into the Hawaiian culture past and the British colonial past, because remember, Hawaii was British for quite a while, gives you a two-for-one vacation. You get both, oh, we're in America, this is fantastic, and then you go to an old sort of country house style hotel and have afternoon tea and you could be in Britain but there are pineapples and palm trees yeah and I think that's so I, I you know for Hawaii I think that's it's always worth kind of digging a bit deeper with Hawaii so I think that's a pretty good list did we leave anything off is there any secret that we're not tell sharing? us tell us I mean <laughs> what did we not do tell us please tell us all of you who are listening where do you, what is your secret winter getaway? I have a special request too because I'm planning a trip to Tokyo and Kyoto. Sorry, it's like, like this host prerogative in, uh, in April. And I'm asking for recommendations in Tokyo and Kyoto. So send those in to us. Let us know. Where should I go? What should Alice I do? Unless you're to like travel harem, aren't they? You just sort of like cull from them as you I need. do. I, this is, this is, this There's is a the... separate section at the end called Brad's Request. Yeah. 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 It worked great for London. <laughs> I put the whole podcast yeah. around it. No, it's it was a great amazing. idea. Yeah. It was, it was actually amazing. <laughs> it worked perfectly. So plan Brad's trip to Tokyo and Kyoto. <laughs> uh, tweet at us. And speaking of which... Subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. Uh, visit us at cntraveler.com, where there are many, many, many articles that these fine folk have worked on about this very subject. We are also at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And please do tweet at us uh, about these questions and many others. Anything that you want to discuss with us, we have started to get lots of uh, uh, input from Twitter and feedback from Twitter. We really love it. It's great. People have been uh, providing us with actually really interesting information about various places around the country and around the world. Send us feedback. Review us on iTunes. And Cynthia, where can people get in touch with you or follow you on the social media or any other place? I am on Twitter and Instagram as at JetSetCD. Very appropriate. Catherine, where? <laughs> I'm on Twitter at KJ Legrave. And I'm on Twitter at Mark J. Elwood with two L's. And please, we really do, as Brad said, we love hearing from you. Even if there's things you hate, we want you to enjoy this more. We want more feedback. We love hearing what you think about what we're doing because we want you to be part of this conversation. Yeah, we love it. It's great. It's fun. The dialogue is fun. I'm at Bradrick, and that's it. Uh, have a great weekend, everybody. Uh, if you're down in D.C. for the march, be safe and, uh, you know, enjoy. And Cynthia, we will talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in so early in the morning and joining us. And we're so jealous. I think everyone, even us, wants your life. <laughs> well, thank you for having me.